This episode was previously recorded using our old podcast name. To find out more about why we decided to change our name, listen back to episode 32 entitled, Why We Changed Our Name. Hey friends, welcome to Kings and Queens, a podcast about the journey of faith. My name is Joseph, and in today's episode, I am joined by Greg Mason in talking with him about how white supremacy shaped his view of God, faith, and theology. We'll also talk about his podcast, The Decolonized Christian, and how we can learn to do faith in a way that leads to the liberation of everyone. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. Welcome back, friends. It is so great to be with you again. I am really, really excited to be sitting with my new friend, Greg, today and having a conversation about a really important topic that I think Greg has an incredible amount of wisdom to offer us as we navigate the waters of white supremacy, which is not a new topic on this podcast, especially when it comes to our faith and theology. And so I'm so excited for this conversation. Really grateful to you, Greg, for saying yes to the invite. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yes, thank you for inviting me. I definitely appreciate it. Yeah, well, before we get into today's conversation, I don't know you very well because we're just Twitter friends, uh, and I'm sure not a lot of people who are listening to this know you very well. So I would love for you to just share a little bit about yourself and give us a sense of what it means to be Greg in this season of your life. Okay, so what it means to be Greg in this season of my life means writing lots of papers, It means teaching other people's children music. That's my full-time job. And it also means continuing um, this journey of faith that I have been on my entire life. So a little bit of background. My dad is a pastor, as yours is, Joseph. I was listening to you talk before we started recording. My dad is a pastor in the CME church. And so um, he got his own church in a small town in Arkansas when I was about nine years old. So he first officially became a pastor when I was nine years old, but he had been a minister, you know, long before then. So I grew up in a typical conservative space and I played piano at church. I played the keyboard, I sang in the choir, I ushered, like I did everything pretty much. As a PK, Mm -hmm. you gotta do it all. Yep, yep. (laughs) I know that life. Yes. And so it's no getting out of it. You just got to roll with the punches, whatever they might be. So kind of shifting a little bit after my dad was moved to a church in Frazier, which is a a community here in Memphis. He was moved from the church in Arkansas to a community here in Memphis. And I stayed at that church in Arkansas for about another year and a half to help with the music ministry. And then I eventually left. Um, and I started doing other church jobs, like more less musician playing keyboard. And I did more music direction and like just basically just like singing and working with choirs. So I did that. And the whole time I was a full time music educator in a K-12 setting. And so, you know, I was going going to school. I started I got my master's degree. I started that in, I think, 2015. And I was done in a couple of years. And um, I've just been, you know, the whole music ed thing. I've been doing that since 2014. And I really enjoy doing that. That's, that has been, ever since I was in high school, I've wanted to be a music teacher. Um, I've done I've done middle school and elementary. I haven't had the opportunity to teach high school choir yet, even though I would love to, to do that at some point. I enjoy middle school. Most people don't like middle school choir or just middle school period. But I I loved middle school when I was doing middle school. Um, And then elementary is good too. They each have their pros and cons, but I've enjoyed both spaces. So just kind of moving right along. As far as my faith journey, I started working at a church in 2016, I believe. Um, And I met a guy who's in a choir. He was in seminary. Um, I became friends with he and his wife. And actually, he's my podcast partner. His name is William. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I met William. Um, So you're both working at the same church at this time, or he just was in the choir? He was, I believe he was getting his degree from seminary 
And so he was placed at this church as a part of a residency program he was in. I believe. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Um, and so we met, became cool. He and his wife, great people, love them. You know, we would always have these dialogues about different things, whether it was theological or just like whatever. He was a really good thought partner, conversation partner. We just kind of had in mind that this is something that we were interested in doing. But prior, prior to that, let me backtrack a little bit. It was the summer of 2020. This is when we were all in our homes, couldn't go anywhere, yep. locked in. Yep. Um, I think this was this was this was the pivotal moment for me in my faith journey. Was when uh, George Floyd was murdered. I always tell people that it was that moment. Something switched, like a, a, a switch went off. A light bulb came on, and I was just different from that moment on. I was just I was totally different. And ironically, when that happened, so by the time that had happened, I was working in a, a in a white evangelical space because another friend of mine was serving as a music director at a church, a big white church here in Memphis. I was serving there in the choir. And so having that happen and being in that space at the same time was, it was like a, a collision. Yes. Um, because even before George Floyd, when black people would get killed unjustly, like the response from my white Christian friends was always very lackluster or non-existent. Mm. Um, be total silence. That was more than likely what would happen, total silence. Yep. And so I was just reaching out to people trying to figure out, okay, what is this? What's going on? Where is where is the outrage, the the anger? Like I was just so confused. Like I didn't know why people were not as upset as I was about this yet again happening in in America. And so I didn't. The theology I had been given wasn't enough at that point. Yeah, it was not enough for me anymore. And that is what radicalized me in that moment because I was just like. Some, something is very awry here. Something is off. And I could not identify what it was because I didn't have the tools. I only, I only had what I had been given my entire life. And so I began reading James Cone, which radicalized me even more. Because if you've, yep. ever, read, if you've ever read James Cone, the, I, one critique people give about James Cone is, his um, that I've heard about James Cone is his uh, Christological views. But aside from that, whether or not you have a high view of Jesus or not, like his theology about the liberation of Black people in America mm-hmm. and, and the role that God plays in the liberation, it, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Yes. Like just reading. Our, what was your first book that you read by Dr. Cone? What was your like? Entry point. Do you remember? Yes. A Black Theology of Liberation. Got it. That's the name of the book. That was my entryway. Um, and I, I had had the book for a long time and just never read it. Wow. But it was in, you know, all that stuff that was happening. I was like, okay, Greg, it's time. And I bought a bunch of other books and started reading stuff too. But um, that was my entry point. And from there... Um, I discovered womanist theology, which I had never heard of before. I had no idea what womanist theology was. I had never heard of it, ever. And so that was another entryway. Um, Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas, she has a book about um, sexuality in the Black church. I started reading that. And so just... Those two experiences with those books really opened my eyes. Maybe a few months ago, four or five months ago, I was also reading a book, um, Indigenous Black Theology, by this guy named Jawanza Eric Clark. I'm pretty sure that's his name. And that just kind of, you know, the, the layers were being peeled away. The more the more and more I read, the more and more I studied, more read the, the more I read the Bible. Because, you know, I was a, I was a guy who thought, this is what it says, and that's it. The plain reading is there. 
It's very clear. Yes. And um, I was like, the Bible was written in English to me mm. for a long time. Yep. And, you know, now I know better. But that was my whole frame of mind when it came to theology, reading the Bible. I've always been a theology nerd ever since I was in high school. I've always been a theology geek, always, always, always. And that was one of the perks of having a dad who was a pastor, because I could have conversations. Even now as an adult, I have them more as someone who is, you know, discovering more about their faith. I have those conversations more with him now than I ever had before. But my 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 reading of, of the Bible was very, it was it was very dense. Like it was, there was no depth. To it, like I couldn't have a dialogue with someone about their historical context of a passage. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It was it was just very base level understanding of of the Bible, and those experiences that I had kind of pushed me to dig a bit deeper because people always told me read the Bible, the answers are there. People always told me this. I'm like, well. You know, I'm going to take people at their word and read the Bible and see what I can discover here in the Bible. I don't read it as the word of God any longer. Um, yeah. But I do believe it contains revelation. Sure. About the reality of God. Yes. Who God is, who God was to those people who wrote those narratives, who wrote those stories. Um, I definitely appreciate it for that reason. And not reading it as the word of God has been somewhat difficult for me because there are times in my life when I did see it that way, where what I was dealing with like situations and like, oh, there's a verse for this, there's a verse for that. But just coming to the reality of what it is, um, I've had to work through that. Yeah. And I think a lot of people struggle, myself included. I shared a little bit of my story before we started recording and I grew up in the church, Bible college, seminary, over a decade of pastoral ministry. And for most of that time, there was one way of reading and the Bible was inerrant. And we kind of have the market in the corner on truth. And so therefore, any other interpretation about anything related to life or theology or sexuality or marriage or economics or race and justice or pick your conversation, the Bible was always wielded as a weapon. And as much as I think people want to ignore the like horrors of Christianity as just a legacy, you really realize once you like see it, you can't unsee the reality that like it's still happening in so many ways. It's just hard to, I think for a lot of people, probably some of our listeners included, it's so hard to get past that really initial step of, am I going to go to hell or be damned forever if I start to have questions or doubts about this faith or way of reading the Bible that I've inherited. And most of the time, again, this is just my experience in my conversations with people, there's always a moment or a series of moments of disorientation that lead people to, okay, I don't know what is next for me, but I know it can't be what I was given. It can't be what I inherited. It can't be what I came from because that doesn't work for me anymore. And I'm sure you're, I mean, I know you're active on Twitter because I follow you and I would highly recommend everybody go and follow Greg, if nothing else, just for the videos of your students singing. Um, (laughs) Literally always a highlight of my day, especially that Prince of Egypt. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. I heard that and I was like, I'm literally crying because that is one of the greatest scores in history. And to hear those like little kids singing, I was like, oh my goodness, this is so amazing. That was, that was something that I just kind of pulled out of my head. Like that was, those were second graders and they actually are the best singers in the entire building right now out of all the grades. Mm. Um, they love to sing, and like I was just like, y'all sing this. <laughs> so I just played it, and they oh. 
Yes, but many so people good. were touched by that, and I did not expect to get the response oh, that man. I got from that video. I think there's something about, maybe it's just like old school Christian people, but we didn't have cool faith stuff growing up. It was like stupid Bible man or Veggie Tales or all <laughs> yeah. this like dumb stuff. Yeah. But for some reason, the Prince of Egypt was like one of those things that I think if you grew up in church, like in conservative evangelicalism, that was like the one thing that was like, these songs are amazing. This movie is amazing. It's like DreamWorks. It's Moses. So it's like this Bible story. And I think like when people look back to the Prince of Egypt, it's like, man, that just like locks a chapter of your life. That's just like, I've moved on from a lot of this, but there is a special place in my heart for some of those moments. But anyways, I digress. I've seen a lot of people on Twitter, specifically white pastors, just even recently with the Gospel Coalition article, just critiquing people's and policing people's deconstruction or disorientation, whatever word you want to use, of saying, hey, you can do this, but you can't do this. And that just clouds our ability to be able to like go on our own faith journey, like you were saying. Yeah, I've definitely seen that countless times. And it's not even always by white men. I just, it's the, you you cannot police people's faith journey. Yes. Yes. I mean, I don't know any other way to just state that besides that. You cannot, you cannot police people's faith journey. It's a very personal thing. And, you know, I, I sit and think about organizations like the Gospel Coalition who constantly critique this idea of deconstruction, not realizing how painful it is for people that are actually doing the work of deconstruction. Yeah, absolutely. It it is a very painful process. It's lonely. It's lonely. um, And, you know, you don't, you don't know, you don't know where this is going to lead. Like, I'm grateful that I have, you know, pastors at my church. I have, Twitter community. I have my dad. I have seminarian friends who I can dialogue with stuff with these types of issues about. But everybody doesn't have it. Um, and even though I'm in a conservative church for the most part, like there's still there there's still people I can talk to if I needed to. If, if, and from and they are not judgmental about what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling. Um, but that's not the case for everybody. And I just think that people, this this notion of deconstructing just because people want to sin is bullshit. Yes. That that is not people can sin, quote unquote sin, like air quote sin, whenever yes. <laughs> whenever they want to. Yeah, absolutely. You, know, you don't have to deconstruct your faith and ask all these hard questions just so you can get a license to sin. You can do that whenever you want to. And I'm using the word sin extremely loosely. Yeah, totally. Um, so the whole that whole concept is um, is ridiculous. But I I commend people who take that step because you know the intellectual dishonesty becomes too much at a certain point, <laughs> and it did for me. By me, you know, having having gone to school and got all these degrees, and I'm in school now working on a degree. Like I just I could not I could not make certain things make sense, and even now certain things don't make sense. And I'm, you know, I just, I'm kind of of the mind that if it doesn't make sense, it's probably not true. One of my friends told me that Judge Judy said that one time. I don't watch Judge Judy, but she was telling me that Judge Judy said, if it doesn't make sense, it's not true. And I believe that in most instances. Wow. Yeah. I, I just do. Like, I think things should make sense. And I think that when, you and when people are being inquisitive about a theological position, I think it's inappropriate to claim the mystery of God when your theological position crumbles to the ground. Yeah. I think that happens a lot too. And I've had to call people out on that as well. It's like, well, no, you just said this. So now you're saying this, like the double, the double talking is inevitable. Yeah. For, for conservative, like, because the shit don't make sense. It's like you can't, you have to go through all these mental loops and uh, linguistic gymnastics to make it make sense. And it just doesn't make sense. 
even what's hard is when people are doing those interpretive gymnastics on one side, which is like, okay, whatever. But then you call out people on the other side who are in your language doing the same types of gymnastics to come to a completely different interpretation and yours are fine, but the other person's are not. And it's just like, yeah, it's that, that double standard of, I may not come to that conclusion. Therefore that conclusion cannot be come to by anyone. Yes. And that's like the bare, you know, the, the base. And I, I think you were talking about that those few and then that big moment of disorientation for you when you know you were like looking and starting to read James Cone and starting to kind of like come into this new way for you at least of doing faith and theology and reading the bible and i would love to talk about your podcast because your podcast uh the decolonized christian which we'll link in the show notes below so you can go and listen to it we'll reference it a few times in our conversation but i think it's one of the best podcasts around right now. It is so, so helpful. So first, thank you for this podcast. It's such a gift. I'm so thankful that I found it. I'm like only seven or eight episodes through, but every time it's just, I'm just like one after the other. Um, So Um, helpful. But can you tell us a little bit about how this specific podcast came to be? What led you to see a need for this podcast and then to kind of be like, hey, I think I need to be the one to like step into this space. What was that journey like for you? <laughs> so that's such a big question. You know, like I was saying before, William and myself. And William is absolutely amazing with the podcast. Most of what you see is William controlling things. But he we we had just again, we had been having these conversations and I, I was learning and reading, you know, I was reading James Cone, like, and so in response, I think really in response to what was happening in the world is, is we are both black men. I think we needed an outlet. We needed a healthy outlet for what we were feeling to process what was happening and not even try, we weren't trying to change the world or nothing like that, but this was really just to, reach those people who are, who want to learn because mm-hmm. there are people who I, I'm sure you have those same people who listen to your podcast to critique it, but we did this so that people who want to learn and who have an ear to listen will be able to do so. Like it wasn't even that we, I guess, ha- had anticipated like growing and growing and growing. Like we have a Facebook community, a small Facebook community, and then we just have like the general podcast listeners. But um, I'm always encouraged when people DM me or tweet me and, you know, be like tagging me and stuff. And I, I'm just, I'm, I'm still getting used to that too. Like people want to hear my voice about a particular topic because I mean, I don't have any formal theological training. I just read. I'm a, I'm a smart, I am a smart guy. I will say that I'm, I'm very intelligent. So I just read and study. Yeah. And I listen to other people. Um, I listen to other voices, like, you know, Joe Lumen, Dr. Angela Parker, um, these, these people who are, to me, giants in, in, the, in these areas that they, that they um, work in. And so um, that's, that's kind of how, that was a motivation as well. But yeah, we just kind of, we just put it out there, you know, for people who want to learn and it's, we've gotten some amazing feedback from different people, all walks of life. And so it's just very, it's just very encouraging for that for, to know that people are taking it in and learning and growing from it. You talk a lot about white supremacy and dismantling white supremacy in your podcast. So again, be sure and go listen to that podcast. But today I would love for you just to speak to those who are continuing to learn and unlearn and reassess and reimagine and rethink their faith and theology, the more that they grow and read and mature and develop just as people, what do you think is one of the most important things for us to remember as we go on this faith journey of learning and unlearning and maturing and developing and losing the things we need to let go of 
and gaining the perspective that we need to. What's a what's some of the most important things that you would say? Here's what I think you need to remember. If I may, I'm gonna speak about myself first, and then translate that to others. Sure. So for me, when I first started, like the whole journey of like um, deconstruction, decolonizing my faith, I wanted to hear from voices that were not the the majority. Yes. So (laughs) I decided that I didn't want to read anything by white men. I only, I really only want to read things by black authors. I, I, I just, I had just gotten to that point where I, I just, I didn't want to have have that in my spirit. So I, would, it was like all black authors, like whether even if, even if it wasn't theology, it was just like all, I want to hear black voices about these topics, hmm. and like just really challenging myself on why I believe a thing. Like critical thinking is something that I, I was conditioned to not do growing up in evangelical spaces. It was something because, you know, you just taught that this is the capital T truth and that's it. So there was no other conversation to be had about anything. Yeah. And so just really being able to sit with myself and question myself about why I believe a thing, why I'm doing a certain thing that really took a lot of self-awareness. So that's one key. You have to be self-aware. You have to be self-aware enough to know when something isn't making sense and how to go back and reevaluate what that thing is. Because a a lot of the beliefs that I held were harmful. Harmful to myself, harmful to other people. And so I didn't, I knew that if I was going to continue to be a Christian, um, which and that that label can be a misnomer sometimes, but mm-hmm. I knew that if I was going to continue to be a Christian, then my faith had to become a tool of liberation because wow. it had been a tool of oppression for too long. So I had to flip the script. And it, it had to become a tool of liberation for myself and for other people as well. And so I I have just really become conscious of how and why I do a thing, even, even at work. Like I'm just very sensitive to that to those things now. And so in doing that, I hope that I will continue to challenge myself and to become more informed about what should be and what shouldn't be. And I just continue to divest from systems of oppression, challenging people about why. For example, you know, just challenging heteronormativity. Yes. Because I think as me, as a Black queer person, I think that it does not, it, it harms it harms queer people, but it also harms people who are not queer because it robs you of the richness and, yes. and, the, and the wealth of community wow. that comes. Yes. You see what I'm saying? It, it, yeah. we, we have to be, we have to get to a point to where we are able to set aside that which we deem as normal, as the norm. Because I guarantee you, some some kind of way that white supremacy has decided that this is what should be. And a lot of times. It's not even based on anything. A lot of the stuff that we believe is just random, arbitrary shit that don't. It doesn't mean anything. It, like, yep. it, don't, it, it has no basis whatsoever. It's just because somebody said that this is what is normal and this is what should be. In the same way with hermeneutics, like one of my friends who went to seminary told me that white supremacy is is deeply embedded in the way systematic theology is done and you haven't been a seminarian you know that that's like a standard course it is it's like hey welcome to seminary white supremacy 101 day one yes it's the water that you swim in absolutely absolutely 
So knowing that and just, just being aware of that and, and having that lens has made me challenge myself and challenge other people as well. I'm about to do a, a many qualitative projects on perceptions of heteronormativity, specifically in schools, since I'm an educator. Like, what does that look like amongst staff? Yes. So that's one of my new projects I'm doing. But that would be my, that would be my advice, Joseph. That's my advice to people who want to divest and grow and learn. Um, listen to the voices on the margins. I think that even that was helpful for me as I have a deeper relationship with the Bible now. And I love the Bible. I love reading the Bible. Just recognizing things and seeing things from the, the non-dominant point of view. So yes. rather than talking about Sarah, no, I'm talking about Hagar. Yes. That is what made me kind of have a paradigm shift, is reading, reading the Bible from the margins. And from there, it has just continued to liberate me, and it's continued to push me in other areas of my life. And so even in my community, like, these are the conversations we're having. What does this mean? How did we get here? And so I'm very grateful. Like my Twitter community, uh, you and tons of other people, I'm I'm very grateful to have to be able to hold space for those types of conversations. I would yeah. encourage people to find a community, find us, find some people that are not going to judge you for the questions you have. Have the conversation, have the dialogue, um, ask all the questions. I believe in asking questions. Yes ask all the questions, get the clarity, get the understanding you need, and you get to decide. You know, we we get to decide. For so long, we were told that there was no other way, there was no other choice. And I've had to sit with that as well, because I think being, again, being Black and thinking about my, my ancestors who were enslaved in this country, who were not Christian before they came here, but they found a way to connect with God, whatever that way was. They, they, they found a way to do that. And they were doing, and they were just fine. They were just fine. And I want to speak to how people connect with God for a moment, because I think that we can connect with God in many different ways. I think for me, that way was Jesus. Um, and looking at the example that Jesus gave in the Gospels, looking at the way Jesus lived his life and the way he carried himself, that was how I connected with God. But I know for someone else, it may not be that. And um, from talking to my dad, one time I asked him, I asked him, um, who do Muslims pray to? Because, you know, they said Jesus' own way to God. Well, I know that Muslims don't believe in Jesus the same way Christians do. And so just asking him who the Muslims pray to, and his, his, his response was the God that, they, that has been revealed to them. So this one God is big enough to not be boxed into this monopolized idea of who he is supposed to be. Yes, and totally. Even when I, I had the pleasure of sitting in on Dr. Parker's New Testament class, and she opens her class with a prayer. And when she was praying at the end of her prayer, she prayed in Jesus' name, but she also gave space for other people who may not pray in Jesus' name. And she verbally said, for those who, who you may have revealed to yourself a different name, which spoke volumes, which spoke volumes, spoke wow. volumes to me. And it, it moved That's me in amazing. that moment because I'm like, wow, God, the God that we believe in, the God that we believe to have be this big, great, big God is bigger than we could ever imagine. And I think it's important for us to remember in this journey of finding truth, I, I do air quotes, in this journey of finding yep. truth, we need to remember that truth cannot be contained within one space. If we believe that God is the 
the source of truth, if that, if that is a presupposition that we hold, we also need to understand that God cannot be boxed in. It's something that, that my dad always says, not, not my dad, a friend of mine. He says, if your God is not bigger than your Bible, then your Bible is your God, and that's idolatry. That's what it is. That's what it is. Wow. That's what it is. That's 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 wow. what it is. He always he always says that, and so hmm. God has never been confined to the Bible. Yes, and, and never will be. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah. I'm grateful that I get to have the interreligious dialogue with my Muslim brothers and sisters. I'm 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 grateful for that because and at one point I would that wouldn't even cross my mind. You know? Yeah. Oh, for sure. There was like anyone who wasn't a Christian was like somebody yes. to be converted. Like even Catholics. Like I grew up with like a very Irish Catholic area. My high school was like all that demographic of people. And I would like go into school with like, all right, I got to evangelize my like Catholic friends. And looking back, I'm like, oh my goodness, we were like, we were even in, on the same team. And I still yes. had this. This colonizer mentality. For relationship. Yeah. And I know what, yeah. and you know what, Joseph, um, I remember being in high school and there was this guy named Ron Rhodes if you remember him, maybe you don't, but he was, he was a white evangelical author and he wrote these books called Reason from the Scriptures. Um, and he had pamphlets. So he had different books, Reason from the Scriptures with Jehovah's Witnesses, Reasoning with um, Muslims, like different, different yeah. religions. And um, there was a pamphlet that he had called What You Need to Know About Roman Catholicism. And in it, it had a like a chart. Like it was like over here, what Roman Catholics believe, and over here, what the Bible says. And, and like just thinking yes. back on that, like it it really blows my mind about how how we could feel so so deeply committed to this one idea of what the Bible is or what the Bible says about a thing. And that's the white supremacy right there. That, that is it. Yep. That, is, that is it right there. The, to believe that only this interpretation is appropriate or is the only true interpretation. And I'm, and so I'm grateful for Dr. Parker's book because it, it kind of, it opens the door it opens the door. It widens the field for these conversations to be had. Um, because yes. while again, while I do not read the Bible as the Word of God any longer, I still I, I, I'm, I'm deeply connected with it, and I believe that God God speaks. God spoke. I believe that God inspired the people who wrote those stories, and so that is how I kind of maintain a semblance of my faith. And as I continue to decolonize, I want to kind of get to a place to where I'm merging in indigenous African beliefs with the theology that I currently hold. I believe that that is, for me as a black person, I think it's important to be moving towards that. Um, like I spoke about earlier, this indigenous black theology I think it's I think it's important for me personally to move move towards that. But for those people who are listening that want to know how can they do more, I would say read people that you probably would never read. Get a community of people. Get a, get in a community of people that is seeking, wants to know. It's not going to judge you for the questions you may have. And just be patient. Be patient with yourself because there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen. And, and for me, it was important to 
decolonize what church meant. Um, I always knew, and this might be helpful for other people too, I always knew that the church was not just a building. I always knew that, but it didn't, like that that concept of of church not being not being just a building didn't really click for me until about within the past year when we were all locked up at the house and couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's amazing how quickly our theology shifted from we need to be together. That is what the church is. We're not going to do this online thing. And then it's like, oh, we need to pivot. And it's like, we can be community anywhere, even in our living rooms. And it's like, bro, you just said last year you were shitting on everybody who was like trying to do digital community and put their service online for people who may not be able to come. And it's like, we are a community of gathered people. And it's like, bro, (laughs) that is so inconsistent. Like, if you're going to be consistent, just be consistent. Be like, sorry, communion doesn't count unless we're in the building. All right. Well, at least you're like consistent, but like, yeah. And see, the thing about it though, right now, Joseph, you and I are having church right now, right here on this podcast. We are having church. Church, the, the idea of church to me now is way more broad than just going to a building for an hour, hour and a half and singing some songs and listening to a pastor preach. How am I serving my community? How am I showing up as a vessel of liberation for somebody else? To, to me, that is wow. being that is being the church. That is being Christ. Yeah. That is being Christ to me. Showing up is embodying liberation for somebody. Um, and wow. so, like I said earlier, if I was going to see a Christian. It had to flip for me. It, it could not be what it what it once was, and so I, I just yeah. I'm steadily steadily on that journey on that path of liberation, and I believe that one day, like Donnie Hathaway said, we will one day we'll all be free. Yeah, wow, that is just so beautiful. I mean, I could I feel like we there's so many different things in there from abolishing what's normal to what is church like we'll have to maybe do another episode in the future because I those are all topics for me. I mean, as soon as you started talking about what is normal and even like cishet patriarchy and heteronormativity, I it brings me back to a thread I read a while ago of a pastor named Michael Gonzalez. Love Michael, Philly. yes. And he, yes. so good, so good. He agreed to be on the podcast in the future, but not right now. So fingers crossed that we can actually make that happen. But he was talking about, he had this thread a while back of abolishing the nuclear family. And I, at first I was kind of like, I mean, I'm a big abolish guy. I'm like, tear everything down. Like, I don't care, burn it to the ground. But I know that for some people, that idea would be like, (gasps) like a really gasp. And then I started to like, think through the reasoning behind why he was saying that and then started to critically think like, wow, everything in our society, like you said, from marriage to vocation, to money, to relationships, to anything, there's this standard of normal that we have that we just assume is either like divinely ordained or pseudo-Christian or the Bible says X, Y, and Z. Therefore, this just must be true. And once you start to like, if you can unpack that and why you feel so drawn to that as being a safe way of viewing the world, if you can do, like you said, the lonely, hard, challenging work of confronting those ideas and then seeing how those deals, those ideas are actually like, really harmful and really oppressive to the people who are most marginalized by Mm -hmm. those ideas, that's when, for at least in my experience, that's when the rubber hit the road for me of, wow, I have inherited not just a theology, but an entire worldview 
of thinking about ministry and God and economics and incarceration and food insecurity and education and business and housing and all of these different things, I've inherited this like way of viewing the world that really benefits me as a cishet, white, formally educated, non-disabled, married, father of two. Like I carry every privileged identity that someone could have. And wow, I actually then have a lot of responsibility to dismantle and divest myself away from the things that I benefit from for the sake of what you said, even the the most marginalized. And that's why I loved when you talked about womanist theology, because when I started reading womanist theology, and specifically when I started reading Dr. Will Gaffney and Womanist Midrash, that was like one of my first entry points into womanist theology. I was like, wow, there is so much that I just assume is normal or true or standard because of all of these identities that I carry. And it wasn't actually until I was able to read somebody else's perspective that I finally was like, oh man, this is like, I got to totally start over. And it was freeing and it did give me comfort. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's definitely a journey though. And for some people, I'm a big risk taker. I'm fine Mm. with taking risks. I've taken risks my whole life. And that's like, you know, just part of my wiring. But for a lot of people that's, you know, can be a really terrifying step to start to confront what you have always Mm -hmm. thought is normal for the sake of the liberation of like all people and all society. I think about how, because we live and exist, I was telling you earlier about all theology being contextual. James Cone says that. He says it in, in a couple of his books about the fact that all theology is contextual. And we, when I think about that, I think about the other layer about us, you and I, and several other people existing in a Western context yeah. and how that also informs how we think, what we believe yes. about things. Yep. And like, it's just, it just really amazes me. Like when I sit and think about the fact that, you know, Christianity is very different outside of the West. The the beliefs that are held by certain groups of of Christians um, or the Orthodox Ethiopian church, for example, their Bible has 80 plus books in comparison to our Protestant Bible, which has 66 books. And that was another reason why I had to kind of let go of the notion of the word of God, because it's like, okay, which which canon is the word of God? (laughs) Yep. It's like, wow, all these like educated dudes decided like sometime here's what's true. And it's like, "Mm, exactly. That doesn't make any sense. Um, But no, so we just have to maintain an attitude of humility um, as we are on this journey and be willing to exist in community with people and learn from each other and not be prideful. My, My thing is, as long as the work of liberation is being done, doesn't matter who does it, how it gets done. Just knowing that we are working together to achieve a common goal. I think liberation is, I think it's both personal and communal. And I can point to examples in the Bible where it was communal. With the children of Israel, for example, that narrative yes. of them being delivered from, from Pharaoh. God delivered a whole group of people. He liberated a whole group of people. And that's, you know, kind of where James Cone pulls out his theology from is from the book of Exodus, for example. Um, but I believe it's both communal and personal. And I think it's important for us to continue the, the work of personal liberation and moving towards that so that we can be better informed about how that affects our community. Yeah. Man, well, um, I definitely want to respect your time. And so we'll definitely have to come back and circle circle back to a few of these topics because there's just so much I would love to talk with you about. Uh, but for now, 
Thank you so much for chatting with us. I am so thankful for your wisdom and for trusting us with what I know are some really vulnerable and sacred parts of your story and your identity and just who you are as a person. Uh, So I just want to honor you in that, honor who you are in the world, what you're doing in the world. For listeners who want to stay up to date on what you're doing and some of the stuff you have going on in the world, what are some of the best ways that they can support you or follow you? I know you mentioned that project that you're working on now, but anything else you want to plug as we close? You can definitely follow me on Twitter and Instagram. It's let Greg live underscore on both platforms. And also the decolonized Christian follow that subscribe on it's available on all platforms. Um, And there's actually a Twitter, which, but if you just search on Twitter, the decolonized Christian, it should pop up. Yeah, we'll link all of that in the show notes so that and a few of the other books Greg mentioned, we'll be sure to to link those below so you can have access to some of those. But uh, be sure to check all of that out. As we mentioned, links are in the show notes below. If this was your first time listening, this podcast is hosted by me and my wife, Nicole. We are bivocational pastors and leaders in Spokane, Washington. And we keep this podcast sponsor and ad-free as an act of justice. So if you're able to become a Patreon member and support the work we're doing, we'd love to invite you to do so by visiting our page below. This episode was written, produced, and edited by us, Joseph and Nicole. Grace and peace to all of you. We love you, and we'll see you next time. Fire. There can be miracles.